Weeks ago, Brooks preached to our church and mentioned Corey Tinboom. And for some of us who've been around the religious world a while, we, we, know, <clears throat> we know the story of the Tenboom family. Corey Tenboom was born in Harlem, Netherlands in 1892, and she grew up in a devout Dutch Reformed church family. During World War II, she and her family housed hundreds of Jews, protecting them from the Nazis as the Nazi invasion worked its way through the Netherlands. The entire Ten Boom family became active in the Dutch resistance, risking their lives, harboring those hunted by the Gestapo. Some of the fugitives would stay in their home for hours, some for days. And Corey herself became a leader of the movement that created these safe houses, estimated to have saved hundreds and hundreds of Jews' lives during World War II. And in 1944, a Dutch informant, one of their neighbors, turned them in, told the Nazis of their work. The Gestapo monitored what was going on at the Tin Boom house. And at the end of the day of monitoring, they arrested 35 people. Interestingly enough, there were people hiding in the hiding place that never got caught. The day of the arrest, the entire Tin Boom family got brought before this German council and, and the oldest is the father, who at the time was 84 years old. And just previous to being led away to the concentration camp where they would all go and dad would eventually die, Corey recalls the conversation that her father had with their captor, their arrestor. Corey Tenboom's dad arrested, she recalls, the Gestapo chief leaned forward I'd like to send you home, old fella, he said to her dad. I'll take your word that you won't cause any more trouble. The dad replied, I could not, or she replied, I could not see father's face, only the erect carriage of his shoulders and the halo of white hair above them, but I heard his answer. If I go home today, he said evenly and calmly, tomorrow I will open my door again to any man in need who knocks. I think about these, these kind of moments, the rubber hitting the road. This is where we all hope that one day if we're, we're asked, are you going to follow Jesus or not? One of those moments like the young woman from Columbine who was said to have been asked back in the 1990s by the killer of she and her classmates, you know, do you say you believe in God? And she responded that she believed in Jesus. And then she was killed. We all sort of hope that we're going to, at that moment of truth, acknowledge Christ or acknowledge that we are willing to do the right thing even if it costs us everything. There's a courage that would take, that would need to take root in us. And this courage is what the Apostle Paul is going to talk about today. It is courage where he says in our passage, this is how I have been able to stand up to the heat of those who would oppose me. This is how I would stand up to the pressures of the culture that would cause me to say, you must change the way you view and think about the world if you're going to fit in around here. Paul would tell everyone, if you're wondering where this boldness comes from, let me give you some insight. He begins this section of scripture that was read today from 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and 13, and says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now, right there should tell you where we're headed. Right there should be the key. We're going to talk about the hope 
that would make somebody very bold. Some of us have difficulty in our boldness. We have boldness maybe in our workplace, differentiating ourselves between ourselves and our workmates for Christ's sake, either in our behavior, our conduct, or even just the way we humbly serve others. Are we willing to be the servant in the office instead of the one who's always demanding that their needs be met? Some of us, it's a, it is a matter of, of being able to stand up for and courageously say, yes, I'm a Christian who takes very seriously the scriptures. And in two weeks, we're gathering together to, or three weeks, no, two weeks, my goodness. Two weeks, we're gathering together. No, I'm sorry, it's three weeks. I'm losing my mind. (laughs) Easter is three weeks away. We're, We're gathering together to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Somebody looks at you at cross eyed in your place of business and says, You believe that a guy really came back from the dead? Are you one of those people that's going to be able to say courageously, yes, I believe that Jesus is God. All of us face moments of courage. Sometimes it's the courage to admit we have a problem. If you have a chemical addiction or a pornographic addiction, you have some struggle in your life. It takes great courage to be able to say, this is a problem. I need help. If you're having difficulty in your marriage, it takes great courage to humbly acknowledge that to somebody, a counselor, a pastor. Say, help us. I don't know what I'm doing. There's a courage that has to come. And Paul says it's in response to his hope. Now, this is the catch for many of us. We want something fresh and new. I love going to new restaurants, trying out new restaurants as long as they're in a certain category of restaurant for me. All right, now my wife likes to go to anything new. She'll try anything at all. I've got like three categories, barbecue, a steak restaurant, and hamburgers. And so somewhere, if it's a new restaurant in one of those three genres, I'm up for it. My wife will try anything. She went to a restaurant with Bonnie James a couple of weeks ago called Lemonade. And just the name makes me say, I'm not going there. Now, God bless the people. If you're the owner of Lemonade and you're here this week, Please enjoy their restaurant. <sighs> but just the idea of going to Lemonade makes me kind of cringe a bit. And so I say this because the nature of our Christian life is virtually the same. And I'm not saying this is a criticism of you or of me, but just a, a reality of the state of our hearts. I will hear from time to time, and my mentors would say the same thing, that people will go, your messages sort of ring the same themes every week. Like, You know, the gospel, grace, the gospel. When are we moving on from the gospel already? And and I get that because there are some Sundays or some weeks where I'll be preparing for my Sunday message and I'll think, didn't I just preach about this last week? And the truth is, yeah, I did. Even just days ago, I was saying to somebody, the reason we have to hit grace like a speed bag in a gym. You know what a speed bag is? It's that thing that hangs on the box and just go, Pretty good sound effects there, isn't it? That's impressive. You got to be loving that, right? We hit grace like that because we have a hard time conceiving of it. We forget about grace. We forget that love from God is unconditional. We live in a world that says, you're only going to get a raise if you're the best. You're only going to get a promotion if you distinguish yourself. You're only going to gain in this world if you earn 
And so we come in here and we start talking about free grace. We talk about love that's unconditioned on any of your behavior. We talk about somebody who graciously cares for you and we go, I don't get it. Naturally, we're not going to get this. And then we're going to fear, but wait, if I get grace, does that mean I'm going to do whatever I want and not actually do something? Because, you know, fear is a great motivator. If I get punished, I will actually behave. And so I like punishment because punishment makes me feel safe. For us, we go, I, 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 I don't know if I can abandon myself to somebody loving me unconditionally. How do I know I'm not going to just do whatever I want? The scriptures tell us it's in abandoning yourself. It's in finding this amazing freedom, this radical liberation from fear of your judgment that will actually cause you to love your liberator. Corey Tinboom is looked at as a hero of World War II, saving people, as many, many others did. She would look and we would look at the courage that she displayed, and you can read about it in her book, The Hiding Place, or you can read about others from faith who said, I've done courageous things, and our tendency is to exalt them without recognizing that their great strength came from where Paul's strength came from, which is a complete and total recognition that without Christ, they're nothing, and without Christ's strength, they can do nothing. So today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is going to reflect on what we talked about last week, which you can hear by going to prismchurch.com and clicking on last week's podcast, or you can just trust me because I wouldn't tell you any different. Paul was talking about the glory of God expressed in the face of Christ and this new hope we have that we are eternally secure in this gospel and that his grace and his kindness are are never going away and never going to fade as as Moses' experience faded away, that we no longer look through this haze of a veil at the glory of God. We see it for what it really is. And since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Our faith, our encouragement, our hope is this thing with Jesus is not going away. This glory we experience, it's a face-to-face walking with Jesus glory that doesn't end. It doesn't fade. We have no need for a veil. Matthew Henry says about pastors like me, the gospel is a more clear dispensation of the law. The things of God are revealed in the New Testament, not in types and shadows. And ministers are much to blame if they do not set spiritual things, gospel truth and grace in the clearest light that is possible. So the pathway to holiness, you're saying, doesn't the Bible issue dictatums that say you must be holy? Yes, it does. It tells you, if you want to go with this metaphor, it tells you from dry to drive from point A to point B. But it also prescribes the fuel it takes to get you from point A to point B. And that fuel isn't guilt. It is the liberating freedom of the gospel of grace. God's kindness. Your uh, your status as a child of God. So the pathway to Christian growth is not learning new truth, but comprehending at deeper levels truths you already thought you knew. And you discover that you learn them all over again.
Got two things I want to share with you from our passages, verses 14 through 18 this morning. Two things this morning, and the first is this. Only by the Spirit's grace can we see Christ's glory. Now, Paul would tell you and I, and this may seem like at face value evident to many Christians, but he's going to take it to a deeper level here for all of us. This is to say Paul's recognition that it was only by the Spirit's grace that he was able to see and understand this glory in all of its majesty. This is not something he did. We are so prone to hero worshiping, and Paul is saying in verse 14, their minds are hardened. For to this day, speaking of the Jews, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses, he's speaking of the law, the Ten Commandments, is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Apostle Paul sees Moses' veil as an analogy to what lays over the minds of those who hear about Jesus, but don't see him clearly. Now, this would be arrogant... For somebody to say, you don't see the gospel as clearly as I do. And actually, when I went to Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, I was not one of these guys who would fall into that particular theological camp. And so anytime I met a Calvinist, and they'd go, tell me something, are you Reformed? I would just want to smack them. You know what I mean? There was just something kind of sort of cocky and arrogant about them. And my wife and I would come home and go, do you even want to be Reformed at this stage of the game? And because it was just the way they talked to us, like we were idiots, And so if you talk to somebody like an idiot, yeah, they're going to think you're terrible. But this is not where this comes from for Paul. Paul says, their hearts are hardened. But why Paul is able to say this and not be uh, arrogance on his part is because Paul goes to such incredible lengths to describe himself as equally blind and only the beneficiary of God's grace. If you can read about Paul's story in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, what you see is not somebody who is searching the mountains of Tibet for truth, not going to the latest guru, trying to figure out what's what. Paul had hardened his heart and said, I know what I know, and anybody who disagrees with me, I'm going to kill. He'd fit in very well with today's Taliban. You don't do it my way, I'm going to take you out. And you can read in Acts 8, this is Paul's demeanor towards people who profess Jesus Christ. This is not a guy who was like really open to the gospel. Tell me about this Jesus, I'm really interested. This was a man who was antagonistic towards Christians. And the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 9 comes and knocks Paul to the ground with a powerful light and blinds him for three days until Paul gives Ever watch one of these UFC mixed martial arts fights? You know, it's pretty brutal stuff. Sometimes people get in one of those holds and, you know, their arm is about to snap and they have to tap out. Okay, okay, okay. I lose. This is Paul. This is how he came to faith. He didn't come saying, I'm curious about truth. I've discovered it. Yay, look at me. See, because in that mode, even the person who calls themselves a a seeker of truth, there's something pious and proud about that. Paul has gone to great lengths to say, I was not seeking out God, and I darn sure wasn't seeking out Jesus. As a matter of fact, I was seeking out to kill the Christians. The Spirit of God knocks him to the ground and says, you're my chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles. I choose you, and I'm God, and I win. Tap out. So he does. He does. 
Paul communicates this. He knows this. So when he says that a veil covers their eyes, covers their minds, it's because he says, I have only been able to see the Lord because he pursued me. Paul, when he explains that when someone turns to the Lord, they can finally see, he's stating a central truth about the gospel. It is God's work in us first. We only cooperate in the sense that after seeing the Lord clearly, we repent and follow Jesus. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul writes to this apostle and says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out so richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saved us, Paul writes. This means that it takes more than a simple intellectual agreement. It is a real experience of being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Regenerated is the term the scriptures used. It's dead tissue being regenerated to life a paralysis victim who needs new stem cells in order to be brought to life. Jesus even describes it in John 15 as him being the vine, we being the branches, and we can only produce fruit as long as we're hooked into him. The life that it takes to be able to respond to the gospel is a gift from Jesus. One of my professors at Reformed Seminary was Dr. R.C. Sproul, and he says this, I quote, After a person is regenerated, that person cooperates by exercising faith and trust. But the first step in the work of God, the first step is the work of God and God alone. The reason we do not cooperate with regenerating grace before it acts upon us is because we cannot. We cannot because we are spiritually dead. We can no more assist the Holy Spirit in the quickening of our souls to spiritual life than Lazarus could help Jesus raise him from the dead. When you're dead, you're dead. And this is the the description that Paul says of his own soul. I was dead. I could not see. And literally, in Paul's case, if you'll read in Acts 9, that's the case. The Spirit of God blinds him. And until he encounters the person who would instruct him about the gospel, Paul's sight then returns This is the metaphor for spiritual life. None of us can see. We are all veiled to the truth until that veil is lifted and we are given life. And this is really not even that different from the experience of Jesus' followers in his lifetime. Lots of really nice, really religious people listened to Jesus until the things he started to say got more difficult to embrace. And when he informed them of the need for his grace and the Father's kindness and ability to even understand what he's saying, people got insulted and then left him. In John chapter 6, verses 63 through 65, Jesus says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Why is this important? 
You say, practically speaking, Chuck, get us to the day-to-day. This week in Los Angeles County, why is it critical to have this understanding? Because it produces a humility in us. It produces a humility in us that makes us recognize our dependence on God. It produces in us an absence of pride that makes whatever we're talking about with regards to the gospel winsome to others because in our hearts, we all know that we're afraid. We're afraid that if people find out who we really are, if they know what's really going on in our life, they're not going to like us very much. And we transition and transfer that onto God because we think God loves us conditionally. And then we go, no, 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 the gospel is He loves you so unconditionally. It wasn't you pursuing him. You're not here this morning because you just love God so much you got up. You're here this morning because somewhere in your life, God has come and said, I want you to know me. I'm going to put a hunger in you. I'm going to put a thirst in you. I'm going to put something in you that says, I want to follow God. It is born of him. Believers, those who've turned to the Lord, have the veil removed from their eyes. And so with unveiled faces, they reflect the glory of the Lord. And in so doing, it says in the scriptures, we're transformed into his likeness. I'm always uh, amazed, and I've lived long enough now to see fashion trends change and cycle through and come all the way back around. The whole boots phenomenon was not something that was a part of my youth I'm talking about my teen and college years. But you can, if you go on and you say 1960s style Google search it, you will see that it's very similar to today's styles. And I remember thinking as a kid, that will never come back. That will never be cool again. And all of a sudden, it's cool. You know, think of this, you know, you watch these movies about the 80s and you see the way 80s people dress and you go, what were they thinking? You know, those poor people, our prom pictures, Carolyn's and mine are just awful. You think, who thought a powder blue tux was a good idea? But in 1980, man, that was really happening. Friend, I I, I tell you this because we all tend to take on the styles of our culture. If there's a dress style that becomes kind of in or a hairstyle that becomes in, we find ourselves gravitating towards it. We are part of something, and so therefore we kind of conform in some sense. And I'm not talking about a moral sense. I'm just talking about a, I obviously don't dress a certain way. I don't dress like they did in the 60s. You guys would go, what's, or the 50s, what's up with that? You look like somebody from Mad Men. You know, you, you dress kind of contemporarily, and you go, you know, this is kind of how it goes. When you're a part of something, you begin to actually sort of change and morph to fit in with that something. This is nature. In the Christian life, it's very similar to that. Your proximity to Jesus is what causes you to conform to his likeness. Some people will say you should pursue holiness. You should. But the only way you're going to pursue holiness, friend, is if you have in your heart a sense that he pursued you first. That any spark in you that says, I want to be godly, I want to be holy... It was really a gift from him. It was birthed in him. There's no room for pride. There's no room for I'm better than you. There's no room for I'm superior to you. Whatever boldness you would have as a Christian comes first from that reality. This is what Paul says. My boldness comes from this hope. And the hope is born of him saying, God pursued me. I didn't ask to be on his team. He selected me and told me, you're drafted. You're on. 
See, if you can get that part of your belief system down, you are now secure to know, okay, I have access to him and I can be close to him proximity-wise simply because he pursued me, because of his grace. He pursued me. Only by the Spirit's grace do we see glory. Here's the second thing I'll share with you today from verses 17 and 18. Only by the Spirit's power can we see Christ's likeness. See, Paul says this in verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. The beauty of Christ's glory is how it manifests itself in our lives in a way that is similar to Moses. Moses goes up Mount Sinai, sees the glory of God in fire. His face actually radiates the the power and presence of God. He comes back and puts a veil over it because the people uh, can't look into his face. The person who is transformed by Christ is changing the way they live. They are being transformed because of the Spirit's presence and power. And the freedom of which the apostle speaks is really twofold. The freedom that he's talking about is, first of all, a freedom from judgment, a fear. No longer needing to fear judgment because Jesus has already received all the judgment on behalf of all who would ever look to him for salvation. You no longer need to fear judgment because Jesus took the weight. Jesus has already gone before you. You're free. You're liberated. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And if the Spirit of the Lord lives in you, the reality of the gospel is that you are no longer to be afraid of eternal judgment. And this is why it isn't arrogant to say you're going to, you know you're going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. And it isn't because I'm a good guy. It's because Jesus already paid the price for me. He already took the judgment that I deserved. That's one aspect of the freedom that Paul's talking about. Another aspect of that is that the Spirit is present in our lives. And the Spirit gives freedom and power for us to look to Him for strength. You ask, don't don't some people naturally obey God apart from being a Christian? I would say yes. People obey God. Some people will obey commands Some people will do good things and not be Christians, and I'll tell you why. Because God has put into the world these special graces that enable us to follow him. I'll give an example of that. Many, I can't speak for everybody, obey traffic laws because they're afraid of getting ticketed. Apart from the threat of punishment, many of us would not follow the speed limits. Many don't steal because they've always had enough to eat. They've never been put in a place where they thought, you know what, if I'm going to eat, I've got to take this food. Jesus says for you and for me that these are means of grace. Some people, some people obey law for fear of punishment. You and I are called to obedience not because we're afraid of being punished, but because we want the love of God who's liberated us. We have been emboldened, as Paul has said. 
He said, because we have this hope, because we have this certainty, we are now able to boldly live and reflect Christ in our world. We're able to boldly manifest his characteristics. But you have to willingly stand there and declare, Jesus is the only way that I can be bold. The only way I can have confidence that I'm actually going to glorify God and pursue Christ's likeness is that I would be able to do so by his presence in my life. Paul's experience with a group of believers in the province of Galatia was such that they were wanting to turn back to a way that they would feel okay with God. They would feel right with God by virtue of how well they did obeying the rules. And Paul was trying to encourage them. Friends, you cannot give yourself over to this system because if you say, I feel good about who I am before God because I'm doing really well obeying these set of rules, you're obligated to obey the whole set of rules. It robs you of all of your joy. It robs you of any hope, any security. It robs you of any confidence because you and I both know deep down inside that there's no way we're keeping all the rules. So in, in good conscience, the only thing we could say is Jesus has kept these commands for us. And this is where Paul reiterates to the Galatians the same thing he's saying here in our, in our current study in 2 Corinthians. There's a freedom that comes. In Galatians 5, verses 1 through 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. I, Paul, say that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There's that word again, hope. See, you and I have said, if you're a believing Christian... I am no longer looking to my obedience to make me acceptable to God. My confidence, my boldness comes that it has been given to me as a gift. I have been made right in the sight of God. I ask you, have you looked to Jesus and his sacrifice unreservedly, unequivocally for your right to be a child of God? At any level, if you continue to look to your own obedience, you rob yourself of the joy of salvation and become a slave again to fear. You, you allow yourself to become a slave to your fears. Paul says the freedom, the liberation is what gives me the power. It gives me the juice. It gives me the courage to do the things that God has called me to do, including pursuing godliness. We are to do this because it reflects the glory of Christ. When we depend completely and utterly and totally on what Jesus has done for us, the glory of God is seen in us. We are seen as humble, broken people saved and rescued by an omnipotent, omniscient, and wonderful God who loves us dearly. Matthew Henry wrote, we should not rest contented without an experimental knowledge of the transforming power of the gospel by the operation of the Spirit, bringing us into conformity to the temper and tendency of the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
There have been many times in my life where I've been afraid. One of the things that was a disabling component of my childhood in terms of what produced a lot of fear in me was I didn't have any brothers. I had buddies who all had big brothers who taught them how to fight. And, and the mere mention of their name, I'm going to call my brother, would cause you to step back and go, oh, he's going to call his big brother into this. I had five sisters. That doesn't come in handy on the playground, just in case you were wondering. Um, the threat of Chuck's sisters coming to equate justice is, just doesn't carry a lot of weight. It didn't for me anyway, even though my sister Kathy can throw down. I mean, she's got some skills, no question about it. See, for many people, the presence of others in their lives is what emboldens them. The bully of my childhood was a kid named Mark. And Mark had two older brothers, and they beat him. And they beat him so much that he was no longer afraid of little imps like me, and so he turned on me and started beating me up regularly. And, and I really didn't know what to do. I was sort of trapped. I was sort of uh, cowering all the time for this local neighborhood bully. Until one day we were playing street hockey in his garage and something come over me. I, I really couldn't understand it. After coming home many times bloodied and beaten up to a mother who was like, I, I don't know what to do for you, kid. I decided I had to take things into my own hands. And so I took a hockey stick and I karate chopped the thing down on this kid's skull and cut his head open. And then I dropped the hockey stick and ran like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I just, oh my goodness. And he came after me, you know. And somewhere along the line, I heard the crying and then he stopped chasing me. And then I got home and this was the dilemma I was faced with. Um, I, I felt guilty and I, like, so I couldn't tell my parents. So I'm sitting on a back porch of my house I'm going, you know, what am I going to do? I can't tell my mom I just cut some kid's head open. But at the same time, you know, I'm really excited that I didn't get beat up today. And so my mom, you'd think, okay, she comes out, she brings me inside, she goes, tell me what's going on. And I, and I can tell you her feelings because we've talked about this since. And I said, I feel bad. I hit Marky on the head with this stick and it cut his head open. And she went, oh, Chucky. And then she kind of held me to her chest and went, thank you, Jesus. Because she, as a mom, didn't know how to teach me to stand up for myself. Now, I mentioned this drama because it took courage, but I can't tell you where that courage came from. I can't even tell you that it was God today. Uh, I can tell you this. There are going to be moments in your life and in my life where we're going to need to draw upon strength. We're going to need to draw upon courage as Christians. Increasingly so for those of you who want to stay faithful to the gospel. And what I'll tell you is, it is only the hope we have that we are secure in God that will empower you and I to do things that we previously couldn't do before. You, you won't be able to say, I did this because I applied Tony Robbins' 10 steps or because I did this particular religious guru's 10 steps to greatness. It's only because you have counted yourself among the family of God and brought yourself in the proximity of Jesus, that you will discover this new strength, this new hope, this new power. It is what will enable you to see Christ's glory and is what, it is what will motivate you and empower you to pursue Christ's likeness. So let's pray that today we would see 
with unveiled faces the glory of Jesus. Lord, we know that it starts with you. You come get us. And as a Christian, it continues with you, you working in us. We can't pursue you unless you pursue us first. Where does courage, where does strength come from? Oh, Father, if you don't work this in us, if we aren't drawn to you by the glory of your Spirit's presence in our lives, if my friends who aren't believers aren't drawn to you by that same Spirit pulling them into relationship with you, drawing them to you, they won't come. We are completely and totally at your mercy, and we thank you that there is endless streams of it. And so for my brothers and sisters who are here today that need your encouragement, infuse them with grace today. Infuse them with power that comes from the liberating freedom of the gospel. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.